Paul's hands danced over the controls. Wings snicked into beetle stubs. G-force pulled at their flesh as the craft came around in a tight bank. Jet flares behind us, Jessica said. I saw them. He slammed the power arm forward. The thopter leaped like a frightened animal, surged southwest toward the storm and the great curve of desert. In the near distance, Paul saw scattered shadows telling where the line of rocks ended, the basement complex sinking beneath the dunes. Beyond stretched moonlit fingernail shadows, dunes diminishing one into another. And above the horizon climbed the flat immensity of the storm like a wall against the stars. Something jarred the thopter. Shellburst, Jessica gasped. They're using some kind of projectile weapon. She saw a sudden animal grin on Paul's face. They seem to be avoiding their las guns, he said. But we've no shields. Do they know that? Again the thopter shuddered. Paul twisted to peer back. Only one of them appears to be fast enough to keep up with us. He returned his attention to their course, watching the storm wall grow high in front of them. It loomed like a tangible solid. Projectile launchers, rockets, all the ancient weaponry. That's one thing we'll give the Fremen, Paul whispered. The storm, Jessica said. Hadn't you better turn? What about the ship behind us? He's pulling up. Now. Paul stubbed the wings, banked hard left into the deceptively slow boiling of the storm wall, felt his cheeks pull in the G-force. They appeared to glide into a slow clouding of dust that grew heavier and heavier until it blotted out the desert and the moon. The aircraft became a long, horizontal whisper of darkness, lighted only by the green luminosity of the instrument panel. Through Jessica's mind flashed all the warnings about such storms, that they cut metal like butter, etched flesh to bone and ate away the bones. She felt the buffeting of dust-blanketed wind. It twisted them as Paul fought the controls. She saw him chop the power, felt the ship buck. The metal around them hissed and trembled. Sand! Jessica shouted. She saw the negative shake of his head in the light from the panel. Not much sand this high but she could feel them sinking deeper into the maelstrom. Paul sent the wings to their full, soaring length, heard them creak with the strain. He kept his eyes fixed on the instruments, gliding by instinct, fighting for altitude. The sound of their passage diminished. The thopter began rolling off to the left. Paul focused on the glowing globe within the attitude curve, fought his craft back to level flight. Jessica had the eerie feeling that they were standing still, that all motion was external. A vague tan flowing against the windows, a rumbling hiss reminded her of the powers around them. Winds to seven or eight hundred kilometers an hour, she thought. Adrenaline edginess gnawed at her. I must not fear, she told herself, mouthing the words of the Bene Gesserit litany. Fear is the mind killer. Slowly her long years of training prevailed. Calmness returned. We have the tiger by the tail, Paul whispered. We can't go down, can't land. And I don't think I can lift us out of this. We'll have to ride it out. Calmness drained out of her. Jessica felt her teeth chattering, clamped them together. Then she heard Paul's voice, low and controlled. 
reciting the litany. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. What do you despise? By this you are truly known. From Manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. They're dead, Baron. Both the woman and the boy are certainly dead. The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen sat up in the sleep suspensers of his private quarters. Beyond these quarters, and enclosing him like a multi-shelled egg, stretched the space frigate he had grounded on Arrakis. Here in his quarters, though, the ship's harsh metal was disguised with draperies, with fabric paddings and rare art objects. It is a certainty they are dead. The Baron shifted his gross body in the suspensers, focused his attention on an Ebeline statue of a leaping boy in a niche across the room. Sleep faded from him. He straightened the padded suspenser beneath the fat folds of his neck, stared across the single glow-globe of his bedchamber to the doorway where Captain Nefhud stood blocked by the pentashield. They're certainly dead, Baron. The Baron noted the trace of Semuta dullness in Nefhud's eyes. It was obvious the man had been deep within the drug's rapture when he received this report, and had stopped only to take the antidote before rushing here. I have a full report. Let him sweat a little, the Baron thought. One must always keep the tools of statecraft sharp and ready. Power and fear, sharp and ready. Have you seen their bodies? Well? My lord, they were seen to dive into a sandstorm. Winds over 800 kilometers. Nothing survives such a storm, my lord. Nothing. One of our own craft was destroyed in the pursuit. The Baron stared at Nefud, noting the nervous twitch in the scissors line of the man's jaw muscles, the way the chin moved as Nefud swallowed. You have seen the bodies? My lord. For what purpose do you come here rattling your armor? To tell me a thing is certain when it is not? Do you think I'll praise you for such stupidity? Give you another promotion? Nefud's face went bone pale. Look at that chicken, the Baron thought. I'm surrounded by such useless clods. If I scattered sand before this creature and told him it was grain, he'd peck at it. The man Idaho led us to them, then? Yes, my lord. Look how he blurts out his answer, the Baron thought. They were attempting to flee to the Fremen, eh? Yes, my lord. Is there more to this report? The Imperial planetologist, Kynes, is involved, my lord. Idaho joined this Kynes under mysterious circumstances. I might even say suspicious circumstances. So? They, uh, fled together to a place in the desert where it's apparent the boy and his mother were hiding. In the excitement of the chase, several of our groups were caught in a laser gun shield explosion. How many did we lose? I'm, uh, not sure yet, my lord. He's lying, the Baron thought. It must have been pretty bad. The Imperial Lackey, this Kynes. He was playing a double game, huh? I'd stake my reputation on it, my lord. 
His reputation, the Baron thought. Have the man killed. My lord, Kynes is the Imperial Planetologist, his majesty's own servant. Make it look like an accident, then. My lord, there was Saudakar with our forces in the subjugation of this Fremen nest. They have Kynes in custody now. Get him away from them. Say I wish to question him. If they demur? They will not if you handle it correctly. Yes, my lord. The man must die. He tried to help my enemies. Nefud shifted from one foot to the other. Well? My lord, the Sadakar have two persons in custody who might be of interest to you. They've got the Duke's Master of Assassins. Hawat? Thufir Hawat? I've seen the captive myself, my lord. Tis Hawat. I'd not have believed it possible. They say he was knocked out by a stunner, my lord. In the desert where he couldn't use his shield, he's virtually unharmed. If we can get our hands on him, he'll provide great sport. This is a mentat you speak of. One doesn't waste a mentat. Has he spoken? What does he say of his defeat? Could he know the extent of... Uh, but no. He's spoken only enough, my lord, to reveal his belief that the Lady Jessica was his betrayer. You're sure? It's the Lady Jessica who attracts his anger? He said it in my presence, my lord. Let him think she's alive, then. But, my lord... Be quiet. I wish Howard treated kindly. He must be told nothing of the late Dr. Yui, his true betrayer. Let it be said that Dr. Yui died defending his duke. In a way, this may even be true. We will instead feed his suspicions against the Lady Jessica. My lord, I don't... The way to control and direct a mentat, Nefud, is through his information. False information, false results. Yes, my lord, but... Is Howat hungry? Thirsty? My lord, Howat's still in the hands of the Sardaukar. Yes, indeed, yes. But the Sardaukar will be as anxious to get information from Howat as I am. I've noticed a thing about our allies, Nefud. They're not very devious, politically. I do believe this is a deliberate thing. The Emperor wants it that way. Yes, I do believe it. You will remind the Sardaukar commander of my renown at obtaining information from reluctant subjects. Yes, my lord. You will tell the Sardaukar commander that I wish to question both Hawat and this Kynes at the same time, playing one off against the other. He can understand that much, I think. Yes, my lord. And once we have them in our hands... My lord, the Sardaukar will want an observer with you during any... questioning. I'm sure we can produce an emergency to draw off any unwanted observers, Nefund. I understand, my lord. That's when Kynes can have his accident. Both Kynes and Hawat will have accidents then, Nefud. But only Kynes will have a real accident. It's Hawat I want. Yes. Ah, yes. Nefud blinked, swallowed. He appeared about to ask a question, but remained silent. Hawat will be given both food and drink, treated with kindness, with sympathy. In his water, you will administer the residual poison developed by the late Piter de Vries, and you will see that the antidote becomes a regular part of Hawat's diet from this point on, unless I say otherwise. The antidote, yes, but... Don't be dense, Nefud. The Duke almost killed me with that poison capsule tooth. The gas he exhaled into my presence deprived me of my most valuable mentat, Piter, I need a replacement. Hawat? Hawat. But... You're going to say Hawat's completely loyal to the Atreides. 
true, but the Atreides are dead. We will woo him. He must be convinced he's not to blame for the Duke's demise. It was all the doing of that Bene Gesserit witch. He had an inferior master, one whose reason was clouded by emotion. Mentats admire the ability to calculate without emotion, Nefud. We will woo the formidable Thufir Hawat. Woo him? Yes, my lord. Hawat unfortunately had a master whose resources were poor, one who could not elevate a Mentat to the sublime peaks of reasoning that are a Mentat's right. Hawat will see a certain element of truth in this. The Duke couldn't afford the most efficient spies to provide his Mentat with the required information. Let us never deceive ourselves, Nefud. The truth is a powerful weapon. We know how we overwhelmed the Atreides. Hawat knows, too. We did it with wealth. With wealth? Yes, my lord. We will woo Hawat. We will hide him from the Sardaukar. And we will hold in reserve the withdrawal of the antidote for the poison. There's no way of removing the residual poison. And the food Hawat need never suspect. The antidote will not betray itself to a poison snooper. Hawat can scan his food as he pleases and detect no trace of poison. Nafud's eyes opened wide with understanding. The absence of a thing, this can be as deadly as the presence. The absence of air, the absence of water, the absence of anything else we're addicted to. You understand me, Nafud? Yes, my lord. Then get busy. Find the Sardaukar commander and set things in motion. At once, my lord. Nefud bowed, turned, and hurried away. Hawat, by my side, the Baron thought. The Sardaukar will give him to me. If they suspect anything at all, it's that I wish to destroy the Mentet. And this suspicion I'll confirm. The fools. One of the most formidable Mentats in all history. A Mentat trained to kill, and they'll toss him to me like some silly toy to be broken. I will show them what use can be made of such a toy. The Baron reached beneath a drapery beside his suspensor bed, pressed a button to summon his older nephew, Raban. He sat back, smiling. And all the Atreides dead. The stupid guard captain had been right, of course. Certainly nothing survived in the path of a sandblast storm on Arrakis. Not an ornithopter or its occupants. The woman and the boy were dead. The bribes in the right places, the unthinkable expenditure to bring overwhelming military force down onto one planet, all the sly reports tailored for the Emperor's ears alone, all the careful scheming, were here at last coming to full fruition. Power and fear. Fear and power. The Baron could see the path ahead of him. One day, a Harkonnen would be Emperor. Not himself, and no spawn of his loins, but a Harkonnen. Not this Raban he'd summoned, of course, but Raban's younger brother, young Fade Rauther. There was a sharpness to the boy that the Baron enjoyed. A ferocity. A lovely boy, the Baron thought. A year or two more, say, by the time he's seventeen. I'll know for certain whether he's the tool that House Harkonnen requires to gain the throne. My Lord Baron. The man who stood outside the doorfield of the Baron's bedchamber was low-built, 
gross of face and body, with a Harkonnen paternal line's narrow-set eyes and bulge of shoulders. There was yet some rigidity in his fat, but it was obvious to the eye that he'd come one day to the portable suspensors for carrying his excess weight. A muscle-minded tank brain, the Baron thought. No mentet, my nephew, not a piter de vries, but perhaps something more precisely devised for the task at hand. If I give him freedom to do it, he'll grind over everything in his path. Oh, how he'll be hated here on Arrakis. My dear Raban. The Baron released the doorfield, but pointedly kept his body shield at full strength, knowing that the shimmer of it would be visible above the bedside glow globe. You summoned me? Raban stepped into the room, flicked a glance past the air disturbance of the body shield, searched for a suspenser chair, found none. Stand closer where I can see you easily. Raban advanced another step, thinking that the damnable old man had deliberately removed all chairs, forcing a visitor to stand. The Atreides are dead, the last of them. That's why I summoned you here to Arrakis. This planet is again yours. But I thought you were going to advance Piter de Vries to the- Piter too is dead. Piter? Piter. The Baron reactivated the doorfield, blanked it against all energy penetration. You finally tired of him, eh? I will say a thing to you just this once. You insinuate that I obliterated Piter as one obliterates a trifle. Hmm? Just like that, huh? I'm not so stupid, nephew. I will take it unkindly if ever again you suggest by word or action that I am so stupid. Fear showed in the squinting of Raban's eyes. He knew within certain limits how far the old Baron would go against family, seldom to the point of death, unless there were outrageous profit or provocation in it. But family punishments could be painful. Forgive me, my lord Baron. Raban lowered his eyes, as much to hide his own anger as to show subservience. You do not fool me, Raban. Raban kept his eyes lowered, swallowed. I make a point. Never obliterate a man unthinkingly, the way an entire thief might do it through some due process of law. Always do it for an overriding purpose, and know your purpose. But you obliterated the traitor Yui. I saw his body being carried out as I arrived last night. Raban stared at his uncle, suddenly frightened by the sound of those words. But the Baron smiled. I'm very careful about dangerous weapons. Dr. Yui was a traitor. He gave me the Duke. I suborned a doctor of the Sook school, the inner school. You hear, boy? But that's a wild sort of weapon to leave lying about. I didn't obliterate him casually. Does the Emperor know you suborned a Sook doctor? This was a penetrating question, the Baron thought. Have I misjudged this nephew? The Emperor doesn't know it yet, but his Sardaukar are sure to report it to him. Before that happens, though, I'll have my own report in his hands, through Chom Company channels. I will explain that I luckily discovered a doctor who pretended to the conditioning. A false doctor, you understand? Since everyone knows you cannot counter the conditioning of a Sook school, this will be accepted. Ah, I see. And the Baron thought, Indeed, I hope you do see. 
I hope you do see how vital it is that this remains secret. The Baron suddenly wondered at himself. Why did I do that? Why did I boast to this fool nephew of mine, the nephew I must use and discard? The Baron felt anger at himself. He felt betrayed. It must be kept secret. I understand. I give you different instructions about Arrakis this time, nephew. When last you ruled this place, I held you in strong reign. This time, I have only one requirement. My lord. Income. Income? Have you any idea, Raban, how much we spent to bring such military force to bear on the Atreides? Do you have even the first inkling of how much the guild charges for military transport? Expensive, eh? Expensive? The Baron shot a fat arm toward Raban. If you squeeze Arrakis for every cent it can give us for sixty years, you'll just barely repay us. Raban opened his mouth, closed it, without speaking. Expensive. The damnable guild monopoly on space would have ruined us if I hadn't planned for this expense long ago. You should know, Raban, that we bore the entire brunt of it. We even paid for transport of the Sardukar. And not for the first time, the Baron wondered if there ever would come a day when the Guild might be circumvented. They were insidious, bleeding off just enough to keep the host from objecting until they had you in their fist where they could force you to pay and pay and pay. Always the exorbitant demands rode upon military ventures. Hazard rates, the oily Guild agents explained. And for every agent you managed to insert as a watchdog in the guild bank structure, they put two agents into your system. Insufferable. Income, then. The Baron lowered his arm, made a fist. You must squeeze. And I may do anything I wish as long as I squeeze? Anything. The cannons you brought, could I... I'm removing them. But you... You won't need such toys. They were a special innovation and are now useless. We need the metal. They cannot go against the shield, Raban. They were merely the unexpected. It was predictable that the Duke's men would retreat into cliff caves on this abominable planet. Our cannon merely sealed them in. The Fremen don't use shields. You may keep some laser guns if you wish. Yes, my lord. And I have a free hand. As long as you squeeze. I understand perfectly, my lord. You understand nothing perfectly. Let us have that clear at the outset. What you do understand is how to carry out my orders. Has it occurred to you, nephew, that there are at least five million persons on this planet? Does my lord forget that I was his regent Siridar here before? And if my lord will forgive me, his estimate may be low. It's difficult to count a population scattered among sinks and pans the way they are here. And when you consider the Fremen of- The Fremen aren't worth considering. Forgive me, my lord, but the Sadukar believe otherwise. You know something? My lord had retired when I arrived last night. I, I took the liberty of contacting some of my lieutenants from uh, before. They've been acting as guides to the Sardaukar. They report that a Fremen band ambushed a Sardaukar force somewhere southeast of here and wiped it out. Wiped out a Sardaukar force? Yes, my lord. Impossible. Fremen defeating Sardaukar? I repeat only what was reported to me. 
It is said this Fremen force already had captured the Duke's redoubtable Thufir Howitt. Ah. I believe the report. You've no idea what a problem the Fremen were. Perhaps, but these weren't Fremen your lieutenant saw. They must have been Atreides, men trained by Howitt and disguised as Fremen. It's the only possible answer. Well, the Sadakar think they were Fremen. The Sadakar have already launched a program to wipe out all Fremen. Good. But... It'll keep the Sardaukar occupied. And we'll soon have Howitt. I know it. I can feel it. Oh, <laughs> this has been a day. The Sardaukar off hunting a few useless desert bands while we get the real prize. My lord, I've always felt that we underestimated the Fremen. Both in numbers and in... Ignore them, boy. They're rabble. It's the populous towns, cities, and villages that concern us. A great many people there, eh? A great many, my lord. They worry me, Raban. Worry you? Oh, ninety percent of them are of no concern, but there are always a few houses minor and so on. People of ambition who might try a dangerous thing. If one of them should get off Arrakis, with an unpleasant story about what happened here, I'd be most displeased. Have you any idea how displeased I'd be? Raban swallowed. You must take immediate measures to hold a hostage from each house minor. As far as anyone off Arrakis must learn, this was straightforward house-to-house -house battle. The Sardaukar had no part in it, you understand? The Duke was offered the usual quarter in exile, but he died in an unfortunate accident before he could accept. He was about to accept, though. That is the story. And any rumor that there were Sardaukar here, it must be laughed at. As the Emperor wishes it. As the Emperor wishes it. What about the smugglers? No one believes smugglers, Raban. They are tolerated but not believed. At any rate, you'll be spreading some bribes in that quarter, and taking other measures which I'm sure you can think of. Yes, my lord. Two things from Arrakis then, Raban. Income and a merciless fist. You must show no mercy here. Think of these clods as what they are, slaves envious of their masters and waiting only the opportunity to rebel. Not the slightest vestige of pity or mercy must you show them. Can one exterminate an entire planet? Exterminate? Who said anything about exterminating? Well, I presumed you were going to bring in new stock and... I said squeeze, nephew, not exterminate. Don't waste the population, merely drive them into utter submission. You must be the carnivore, my boy. The Baron smiled, a baby's expression in the dimple fat face. A carnivore never stops. Show no mercy, never stop. Mercy is a chimera. It can be defeated by the stomach rumbling its hunger, by the throat crying its thirst. You must always be hungry and thirsty. The Baron caressed his bulges beneath the suspensors. Like me. I see, my lord. Raban swung his gaze left and right. It's all clear then, nephew? Except for one thing, uncle. The planetologist, Kynes. Ah, yes. Kynes. He's the Emperor's man, my lord. He can come and go as he pleases. And he's very close to the Fremen. Married one. Kynes will be dead by tomorrow's nightfall. That's dangerous work, uncle. Killing an Imperial servant. How do you think I've come this far this quickly? Besides, you need never have feared Kynes would leave Arrakis. You're forgetting that he's addicted to the spice. Of course. 
Those who know will do nothing to endanger their supply. Kine certainly must know. I forgot. They stared at each other in silence. Incidentally, you will make my own supply one of your first concerns. I have quite a stockpile of private stuff, but that suicide raid by the Duke's men got most of what we'd stored for sale. Yes, my lord. Raban nodded, and the Baron brightened. Now tomorrow morning you will assemble what remains of organization here, and you'll say to them, Our sublime Padishah Emperor has charged me to take possession of this planet and end all dispute. I understand, my lord. This time I'm sure you do. We will discuss it in more detail tomorrow. Now leave me to finish my sleep. The Baron deactivated his door field, watched his nephew out of sight. A tank brain, the Baron thought. Muscle-minded tank brain. They will be bloody pulp here when he's through with them. Then, when I send in Fade Rauther to take the load off them, they'll cheer their rescuer. Beloved Fade Rauther, benign Fade Rauther, the compassionate one who saves them from a beast. Fade Rauther, a man to follow and die for. The boy will know by that time how to oppress with impunity. I'm sure he's the one we need. He'll learn. And such a lovely body. Really a lovely boy. At the age of 15, he had already learned silence. From a child's history of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. As Paul fought the Thopter's controls, he grew aware that he was sorting out the interwoven storm forces, his more-than-mentat awareness computing on the basis of fractional minutiae. He felt dust fronts, billowings, mixings of turbulence, an occasional vortex. The cabin interior was an angry box lighted by the green radiance of instrument dials. The tan flow of dust outside appeared featureless, but his inner sense began to see through the curtain. I must find the right vortex, he thought. For a long time now he had sensed the storm's power diminishing, but still it shook them. He waited out another turbulence. The vortex began as an abrupt billowing that rattled the entire ship. Paul defied all fear to bank the thopter left. Jessica saw the maneuver on the altitude globe. Paul! she screamed. The vortex turned them, twisting, tipping. It lifted the thopter like a chip on a geyser, spewed them up and out, a winged speck within a core of winding dust lighted by the second moon. Paul looked down saw the dust-defined pillar of hot wind that had disgorged them, saw the dying storm trailing away like a dry river into the desert, moon-grey motion growing smaller and smaller below as they rode the updraft. "'We're out of it,' Jessica whispered. Paul turned their craft away from the dust in swooping rhythm while he scanned the night sky. "'We've given them the slip,' he said. Jessica felt her heart pounding, she forced herself to calmness, looked at the diminishing storm. Her time sense said they had ridden within that compounding of elemental forces almost four hours, but part of her mind computed the passage as a lifetime. She felt reborn. It was like the litany, she thought. 
We faced it and did not resist. The storm passed through us and around us. It's gone, but we remain. I don't like the sound of our wing motion, Paul said. We suffered some damage in there. He felt the grating, injured flight through his hands on the controls. They were out of the storm, but still not out into the full view of his prescient vision. Yet they had escaped, and Paul sensed himself trembling on the verge of a revelation. He shivered. The sensation was magnetic and terrifying, and he found himself caught on the question of what caused this trembling awareness. Part of it, he felt, was the spice-saturated diet of Arrakis, but he thought part of it could be the litany, as though the words had a power of their own. I shall not fear. Cause and effect. He was alive despite malignant forces, and he felt himself poised on a brink of self-awareness that could not have been without the litany's magic. Words from the Orange Catholic Bible rang through his memory. What senses do we lack? that we cannot see or hear another world all around us. There's rock all around, Jessica said. Paul, focused on the thopter's launching, shook his head to clear it. He looked where his mother pointed, saw uplifting rock shapes black on the sand ahead and to the right. He felt wind around his ankles, a stirring of dust in the cabin. There was a hole somewhere. More of the storm's doing. Better set us down on sand. Jessica said. The wings might not take full break. He nodded toward a place ahead where sand-blasted ridges lifted into moonlights above the dunes. I'll set us down near those rocks. Check your safety harness. She obeyed, thinking, We've water and still suits. If we can find food, we can survive a long time on this desert. Fremen live here. What they can do, we can do. Run for those rocks the instant we're stopped, Paul said. I'll take the pack. Run for... She fell silent, nodded. Worms. Our friends, the worms, he corrected her. They'll get this thopter. There'll be no evidence of where we landed. How direct his thinking, she thought. They glided lower, lower. There came a rushing sense of motion to their passage, blurred shadows of dunes, rocks lifting like islands. The thopter touched a dune top with a soft lurch, skipped a sand valley, touched another dune. He's killing our speed against the sand, Jessica thought, and permitted herself to admire his competence. Brace yourself, Paul warned. He pulled back on the wing brakes, gently at first, then harder and harder. He felt them cup the air, their aspect ratio dropping faster and faster. Wind screamed through the lapped coverts and primaries of the wing's leaves. Abruptly, with only the faintest lurch of warning, the left wing, weakened by the storm, twisted upward and in, slamming across the side of the thopter. The craft skidded across a dune top, twisting to the left. It tumbled down the opposite face to bury its nose in the next dune amid a cascade of sand. They lay stopped on the broken wing side, the right wing pointing toward the stars. Paul jerked off his safety harness, hurled himself upward across his mother, wrenching the door open. Sand poured around them into the cabin, bringing a dry smell of burned flint. He grabbed the pack from the rear, saw that his mother was free of her harness. She stepped up onto the side of the right-hand seat and out onto the thopter's metal skin.
Paul followed, dragging the pack by its straps. Run! he ordered. He pointed up the dune face and beyond it, where they could see a rock tower undercut by sandblast winds. Jessica leaped off the thopter and ran, scrambling and sliding up the dune. She heard Paul's panting progress behind. They came out onto a sand ridge that curved away toward the rocks. Follow the ridge, Paul ordered. It'll be faster. They slogged toward the rocks, sand gripping their feet. A new sound began to impress itself on them, a muted whisper, a hissing, an abrasive slithering. Worm, Paul said. It grew louder. Faster, Paul gasped. The first rock shingle, like a beach slanting from the sand, lay no more than ten metres ahead when they heard metal crunch and shatter behind them. Paul shifted his pack to his right arm, holding it by the straps. It slapped his side as he ran. He took his mother's arm with his other hand. They scrambled onto the lifting rock up a pebble-littered surface through a twisted, wind-carved channel. Breath came dry and gasping in their throats. I can't run any farther, Jessica panted. Paul stopped, pressed her into a gut of rock, turned and looked down onto the desert. A mound in motion ran parallel to their rock island, moonlit ripples, sand waves, a cresting burrow almost level with Paul's eyes at a distance of about a kilometre. The flattened dunes of its track curved once, a short loop crossing the patch of desert where they had abandoned their wrecked ornithopter. Where the worm had been, there was no sign of the aircraft. The burrow mound moved outward into the desert, coursed back across its own path, questing. It's bigger than a guild spaceship, Paul whispered. I was told worms grew large in the deep desert, but I didn't realize... How big? Nor I, Jessica breathed. Again the thing turned out away from the rocks, sped now with a curbing track toward the horizon. They listened until the sound of its passage was lost in gentle sand stirrings around them. Paul took a deep breath, looked up at the moon-frosted escarpment, and quoted from the Kitab Alibar. Travel by night and rest in black shade through the day. He looked at his mother. We still have a few hours of night. Can you go on? In a moment. Paul stepped out onto the rock shingle, shouldered the pack and adjusted its straps. He stood a moment with a paracompass in his hands. Whenever you're ready, he said. She pushed herself away from the rock, feeling her strength return. Which direction? Where this ridge leads, he pointed. Deep into the desert, she said. The Fremen Desert, Paul whispered. And he paused, shaken by the remembered high-relief imagery of a prescient vision he had experienced on Caladan. He had seen this desert, but the set of the vision had been subtly different, like an optical image that had disappeared into his consciousness, been absorbed by memory, and now failed of perfect registry when projected onto the real scene. The vision appeared to have shifted and approached him from a different angle while he remained motionless. Idaho was with us in the vision, he remembered. But now Idaho is dead. Do you see a way to go? Jessica asked, mistaking his hesitation. No, he said, but we'll go anyway. He settled his shoulders more firmly in the pack, 
struck out up a sand-carved channel in the rock. The channel opened onto a moonlit floor of rock with benched ledges climbing away to the south. Paul headed for the first ledge, clambered onto it. Jessica followed. She noted presently how their passage became a matter of the immediate and particular, the sand pockets between rocks where their steps were slowed, the wind-carved ridge that cut their hands, the obstruction that forced a choice, go over or go around. The terrain enforced its own rhythms. They spoke only when necessary and then with the hoarse voices of their exertion. Careful here. This ledge is slippery with sand. Watch you don't hit your head against this overhang. Stay below this ridge. The moon's at our backs and it'd show our movement to anyone out there. Paul stopped in a bite of rock, leaned the pack against a narrow ledge. Jessica leaned beside him, thankful for the moment of rest. She heard Paul pulling at his still-suit tube, sipped her own reclaimed water. It tasted brackish, and she remembered the waters of Caladan, a tall fountain enclosing a curve of sky, such a richness of moisture that it hadn't been noticed for itself, only for its shape, or its reflection, or its sound as she stopped beside it. To stop, she thought, to rest, truly rest. It occurred to her that mercy was the ability to stop, if only for a moment. There was no mercy where there could be no stopping. Paul pushed away from the rock ledge, turned and climbed over a sloping surface. Jessica followed with a sigh. They slid down onto a wide shelf that led around a sheer rock face. Again they fell into the disjointed rhythm of movement across this broken land. Jessica felt that the night was dominated by degrees of smallness in substances beneath their feet and hands, boulders or pea gravel or flaked rock, or pea-sand, or sand itself, or grit, or dust, or gossamer powder. The powder clogged nose filters and had to be blown out. Pea-sand and pea-gravel rolled on a hard surface and could spill the unwary. Rock flakes cut, and the omnipresent sand patches dragged against their feet. Paul stopped abruptly on a rock shelf, steadied his mother as she stumbled into him. He was pointing left, and she looked along his arm to see that they stood atop a cliff with the desert stretched out like a static ocean some two hundred meters below. It lay there full of moon-silvered waves, shadows of angles that lapsed into curves, and, in the distance, lifted to the misty gray blur of another escarpment. "'Open desert,' she said. "'A wide place to cross,' Paul said." and his voice was muffled by the filter trap across his face. Jessica glanced left and right, nothing but sand below. Paul stared straight ahead across the open dunes, watching the movement of shadows in the moon's passage. About three or four kilometers across, he said. Worms, she said. Sure to be. She focused on her weariness, the muscle ache that dulled her senses. Shall we rest and eat? Paul slipped out of the pack, sat down and leaned against it. Jessica supported herself by a hand on his shoulder as she sank to the rock beside him. She felt Paul turn as she settled herself, heard him scrabbling in the pack. Here, he said. 
His hand felt dry against hers as he pressed two energy capsules into her palm. She swallowed them with a grudging spit of water from her still-suit tube. "'Drink all your water,' Paul said. "'Axiom. The best place to conserve your water is in your body. It keeps your energy up. You're stronger. Trust your still-suit.' She obeyed, drained her catch-pockets, feeling energy return. She thought then how peaceful it was here in this moment of their tightness and she recalled once hearing the minstrel warrior Gurney Halleck say, "'Better a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifice and strife.' Jessica repeated the words to Paul. "'That was Gurney,' he said. She caught the tone of his voice, the way he spoke as of someone dead, thought, "'And well, poor Gurney might be dead.' The Atreides' forces were either dead or captive, or lost like themselves in this waterless void. "'Gurney always had the right quotation,' Paul said. "'I can hear him now. "'And I will make the rivers dry, "'and sell the land into the hand of the wicked, "'and I will make the land waste and all that is therein "'by the hand of strangers.' "'Jessica closed her eyes, "'found herself moved close to tears "'by the pathos in her son's voice.' Presently, Paul said, How do you feel? She recognized that his question was directed at her pregnancy, said, Your sister won't be born for many months yet. I still feel physically adequate. And she thought, How stiffly formal I speak to my own son. Then, because it was the Bene Gesserit way to seek within for the answer to such an oddity, she searched and found the source of her formality. I'm afraid of my son. I fear his strangeness. I fear what he may see ahead of us, what he may tell me. Paul pulled his hood down over his eyes, listened to the bug-hustling sounds of the night. His lungs were charged with his own silence. His nose itched. He rubbed it, removed the filter, and grew conscious of the rich smell of cinnamon. There's melange spice nearby, he said. An eider wind feathered Paul's cheeks, ruffled the folds of his burnous. But this wind carried no threat of storm. Already he could sense the difference. Dawn soon, he said. Jessica nodded. There's a way to get safely across that open sand, Paul said. The Fremen do it. The worms? If we were to plant a thumper from our Frem kit back in the rocks here, Paul said, it'd keep a worm occupied for a time. She glanced at the stretch of moonlighted desert between them and the other escarpment. Four kilometres worth of time? Perhaps. And if we crossed there, making only natural sounds, the kind that don't attract the worms. Paul studied the open desert, questing in his prescient memory, probing the mysterious allusions to thumpers and maker hooks in the Fremkit manual that had come with their escape pack. He found it odd that all he sensed was pervasive terror at thought of the worms. He knew, as though it lay just at the edge of his awareness, that the worms were to be respected and not feared. If, if, he shook his head. It'd have to be sounds without rhythm, Jessica said. What? Oh, yes, if we broke our steps. The sand itself must shift down at times. 
Worms can't investigate every little sound. We should be fully rested before we try it, though. He looked across at that other rock wall, seeing the passage of time in the vertical moon shadows there. It'll be dawn within the hour. Where'll we spend the day? she asked. Paul turned left, pointed. The cliff curves back north over there. You can see by the way it's wind-cut, that's the windward face. There'll be crevices there, deep ones. How do we better get started? she asked. He stood, helped her to her feet. Are you rested enough for a climb down? I want to get as close as possible to the desert floor before we camp. Enough. She nodded for him to lead the way. He hesitated, then lifted the pack, settled it onto his shoulders and turned along the cliff. If only we had suspensers, Jessica thought. It'll be such a simple matter to jump down there. But perhaps suspensers are another thing to avoid in the open desert. Maybe they attract the worms the way a shield does. They came to a series of shelves dropping down, and beyond them saw a fissure with its ledge outlined by moon shadow leading along the vestibule. Paul led the way down, moving cautiously but hurrying because it was obvious the moonlight could not last much longer. They wound down into a world of deeper and deeper shadows. Hints of rock shape climbed to the stars around them. The fissure narrowed to some ten meters width at the brink of a dim, grey sand slope that slanted downward into darkness. Can we go down? Jessica whispered. I think so. He tested the surface with one foot. We can slide down, he said. I'll go first. Wait until you hear me stop. Careful, she said. He stepped onto the slope and slid and slipped down its soft surface onto an almost level floor of packed sand. The place was deep within the rock walls. There came the sound of sand sliding behind him. He tried to see up the slope in the darkness, was almost knocked over by the cascade. It trailed away to silence. Mother, he said. There was no answer. Mother? He dropped the pack, hurled himself up the slope, scrambling, digging, throwing sand like a wild man. Mother, he gasped. Mother, where are you? Another cascade of sand swept down on him, burying him to the hips. He wrenched himself out of it. She's been caught in the landslide, he thought, buried in it. I must be calm and work this out carefully. She won't smother immediately. She'll compose herself in bindu suspension to reduce her oxygen needs. She knows I'll dig for her. In the Bene Gesserit way she had taught him, Paul stilled the savage beating of his heart, set his mind as a blank slate upon which the past few moments could write themselves. Every partial shift and twist of the slide replayed itself in his memory, moving with an interior stateliness that contrasted with a fractional second of real time required for the total recall. Presently, Paul moved slantwise up the slope, probing cautiously until he found the wall of the fissure, an outcurve of rock there. He began to dig, moving the sand with care not to dislodge another slide. A piece of fabric came under his hands. He followed it, found an arm. Gently he traced the arm, exposed her face. Do you hear me? he whispered. No answer. 
He dug faster, freed her shoulders. She was limp beneath his hands, but he detected a slow heartbeat. Bindu suspension, he told himself. He cleared the sand away to her waist, draped her arms over his shoulders and pulled downslope, slowly at first, then dragging her as fast as he could, feeling the sand give way above. Faster and faster he pulled her, gasping with the effort, fighting to keep his balance. He was out on the hard-packed floor of the fissure then, swinging her to his shoulder and breaking into a staggering run, as the entire sand slope came down with a loud hiss that echoed and was magnified within the rock walls. He stopped at the end of the fissure where it looked out on the desert's marching dunes some thirty meters below. Gently, he lowered her to the sand, uttered the word to bring her out of the catalepsis. She awakened slowly, taking deeper and deeper breaths. I knew you'd find me, she whispered. He looked back up the fissure. It might have been kinder if I hadn't. Paul, I lost the pack, he said. It's buried under a hundred tons of sand, at least. Everything, the spare water, the still tent, everything that counts. He touched a pocket. I still have the paracompass. He fumbled at the waist sash. Knife and binoculars. We can get a good look around the place where we'll die. In that instant, the sun lifted above the horizon somewhere to the left, beyond the end of the fissure. Colors blinked in the sand out on the open desert. A chorus of birds held forth their songs from hidden places among the rocks. But Jessica had eyes only for the despair in Paul's face, she edged her voice with scorn, said, Is this the way you were taught? Don't you understand? he asked. Everything we need to survive in this place is under that sand. You found me, she said. And now her voice was soft, reasonable. Paul squatted back on his heels. Presently he looked up the fissure at the new slope, studying it, marking the looseness of the sand. If we could immobilize a small area of that slope and the upper face of a hole dug into the sand, we might be able to put down a shaft to the pack. Water might do it, but we don't have enough water for... He broke off, then... Foam. Jessica held herself to stillness lest she disturb the hyper-functioning of his mind. Paul looked out at the open dunes, searching with his nostrils as well as his eyes, finding the direction and then centering his attention on a darkened patch of sand below them. Spice, he said, its essence highly alkaline, and I have the paracompass, its power pack is acid base. Jessica sat up straight against the rock. Paul ignored her, leaping to his feet, and was off down the wind-compacted surface that spilled from the end of the fissure to the desert's floor. She watched the way he walked, breaking his stride, Step, pause, step, step, slide, pause. There was no rhythm to it that might tell a marauding worm something not of the desert moved here. Paul reached the spice patch, shoveled a mound of it into a fold of his robe, returned to the fissure. He spilled the spice onto the sand in front of Jessica, squatted and began dismantling the paracompass, using the point of his knife. The compass face came off. He removed his sash, spread the compass parts on it, lifted out the power pack. 
The dial mechanism came out next, leaving an empty, dished compartment in the instrument. You'll need water, Jessica said. Paul took the catch tube from his neck, sucked up a mouthful, expelled it into the dished compartment. If this fails, that's water wasted, Jessica thought. But it won't matter then, anyway. With his knife, Paul cut open the power pack, spilled its crystals into the water. They foamed slightly, subsided. Jessica's eyes caught motion above them. She looked up to see a line of hawks along the rim of the fissure. They perched there, staring down at the open water. Great mother, she thought. They can sense water even at that distance. Paul had the cover back on the paracampus, leaving off the reset button, which gave a small hole into the liquid. Taking the reworked instrument in one hand, a handful of spice in the other, Paul went back up the fissure, studying the lay of the slope. His robe billowed gently without the sash to hold it. He waded part way up the slope, kicking off the sand rivulets, spurts of dust. Presently he stopped, pressed a pinch of the spice into the paracampus, shook the instrument case. Green foam boiled out of the hole where the reset button had been. Paul aimed it at the slope, spread a low dike there, began kicking away the sand beneath it, immobilizing the opened face with more foam. Jessica moved to a position below him, called out, May I help? Come up and dig, he said. We've got three meters to go. It's going to be a near thing. As he spoke, the foam stopped billowing from the instrument. Quickly, Paul said. No telling how long this foam will hold the sand. Jessica scrambled up beside Paul as he sifted another pinch of spice into the hole, shook the paracampus case. Again, foam boiled from it. As Paul directed the foam barrier, Jessica dug with her hands, hurling the sand down the slope. How deep, she panted. About three metres, he said, and I can only approximate the position. We may have to widen this hole. He moved a step aside, slipping in loose sand. Slant your digging backward. Don't go straight down. Jessica obeyed. Slowly the hole went down, reaching a level even with the floor of the basin, and still no sign of the pack. Could I have miscalculated? Paul asked himself. I'm the one that panicked originally and caused this mistake. Has that warped my ability? He looked at the paracampus. Less than two ounces of the acid infusion remained. Jessica straightened in the hole, rubbed a foam-stained hand across her cheek. Her eyes met Paul's. The upper face, Paul said. Gently now. He added another pinch of spice to the container, sent the foam boiling around Jessica's hands as she began cutting a vertical face in the upper slant of the hole. On the second pass, her hands encountered something hard. Slowly she worked out a length of strap with a plastic buckle. "'Don't move any more of it,' Paul said, and his voice was almost a whisper. "'We're out of foam.' Jessica held the strap in one hand looked up at him. Paul threw the empty paracampus down onto the floor of the basin, said, Give me your other hand. Now listen carefully. I'm going to pull you to the side and downhill. Don't let go of that strap. We won't get much more spill from the top. This slope has stabilized itself. 
All I'm going to aim for is to keep your head free of the sand. Once that hole's filled, we can dig you out and pull up the pack. I understand, she said. Ready? Ready. She tensed her fingers on the strap. With one surge, Paul had her half out of the hole, holding her head up as the foam barrier gave way and sand spilled down. When it had subsided, Jessica remained buried to the waist, her left arm and shoulder still under the sand, her chin protected on a fold of Paul's robe. Her shoulder ached from the strain put on it. I still have the strap, she said. Slowly, Paul worked his hand into the sand beside her, found the strap. Together, he said. Steady pressure. We mustn't break it. More sand spilled down as they worked the pack up. When the strap cleared the surface, Paul stopped, freed his mother from the sand. Together then they pulled the pack down slope and out of its trap. In a few minutes they stood on the floor of the fissure, holding the pack between them. Paul looked at his mother. Foam strained her face, her robe. Sand was caked to her where the foam had dried. She looked as though she had been a target for balls of wet, green sand. "'You look a mess,' he said. "'You're not so pretty yourself,' she said. They started to laugh, then sobered. "'That shouldn't have happened,' Paul said. "'I was careless.' She shrugged, feeling caked sand fall away from her robe. "'I'll put up the tent,' he said. "'Better slip off that robe and shake it out.' He turned away, taking the pack. Jessica nodded, suddenly too tired to answer. "'There's anchor holes in the rock,' Paul said. "'Someone's tented here before.' "'Why not?' she thought, as she brushed at her robe. "'This was a likely place.' deep in rock walls and facing another cliff some four kilometres away, far enough above the desert to avoid worms, but close enough for easy access before a crossing. She turned, seeing that Paul had the tent up, its rib-domed hemisphere blending with the rock walls of the fissure. Paul stepped past her, lifting his binoculars. He adjusted their internal pressure with a quick twist, focused the oil lenses on the other cliff, lifting golden tan in morning light across open sand. Jessica watched as he studied that apocalyptic landscape, his eyes probing into sand rivers and canyons. There are growing things over there, he said. Jessica found the spare binoculars in the pack beside the tent, moved up beside Paul. There, he said holding the binoculars with one hand and pointing with the other. She looked where he pointed. Saguaro, she said. Scrawny stuff. There may be people nearby, Paul said. That could be the remains of a botanical testing station, she warned. This is pretty far south into the desert, he said. He lowered his binoculars, rubbed beneath his filter baffle, feeling how dry and chapped his lips were, sensing the dusty taste of thirst in his mouth. This has the feeling of a Fremen place, he said. Are we certain the Fremen will be friendly? she asked. Kynes promised their help. But there's desperation in the people of this desert, she thought. I felt some of it myself today. Desperate people might kill us for our water. She closed her eyes and... Against this wasteland conjured in her mind a scene from Caladan. 
There had been a vacation trip once on Caladan, she and the Duke later, before Paul's birth. They'd flown over the southern jungles, above the weed-wild shouting leaves and rice paddies of the deltas. And they had seen the ant lines in the greenery, man-gangs carrying their loads on suspenser-buoyed shoulder poles, and in the sea-reaches there had been the white petals of trimaran dows. All of it gone. Jessica opened her eyes to the desert stillness, to the mounting warmth of the day. Restless heat devils were beginning to set the air a-quiver out on the open sand. The other rock face across from them was like a thing seen through cheap glass. A spill of sand spread its brief curtain across the open end of the fissure. The sand hissed down, loosed by puffs of morning breeze, by the hawks that were beginning to lift away from the cliff-top. When the sandfall was gone, she still heard it hissing. It grew louder, a sound that, once heard, was never forgotten. Worm, Paul whispered. It came from their right with an uncaring majesty that could not be ignored, a twisting burrow mound of sand cut through the dunes within their field of vision. The mound lifted in front, dusting away like a bow wave in water. Then it was gone, coursing off to the left. The sound diminished, died. I've seen space frigates that were smaller, Paul whispered. She nodded, continuing to stare across the desert. Where the worm had passed, there remained that tantalizing gap. It flowed bitterly endless before them, beckoning beneath its horizontal collapse of skyline. When we've rested, Jessica said, we should continue with your lessons. He suppressed a sudden anger, said, Mother, don't you think we could do without... Today you panicked, she said. You know your mind and Bindu nervature perhaps better than I do, but you've much yet to learn about your body's prana musculature. The body does things of itself sometimes, Paul, and I can teach you about this. You must learn to control every muscle, every fibre of your body. You need review of the hands. We'll start with finger muscles, palm tendons, and tip sensitivity. She turned away. Come into the tent now. He flexed the fingers of his left hand, watching her crawl through the sphincter valve, knowing that he could not deflect her from this determination, that he must agree. Whatever has been done to me, I've been a party to it, he thought. Review of the hand. He looked at his hand. How inadequate it appeared when measured against such creatures as that worm. We came from Caledon, a paradise world for our form of life. There existed no need on Caledon to build a physical paradise or a paradise of the mind. We could see the actuality all around us. And the price we paid was the price men have always paid for achieving a paradise in this life. We went soft. We lost our edge. From Muad'Dib, Conversations by the Princess Irulan. So you're the great Gurney Halleck, the man said. Halleck stood staring across the round cavern office at the smuggler seated behind a metal desk. The man wore Fremen robes and had the half-tint blue eyes that told of off-planet foods in his diet. 
The office duplicated a space frigate's master control center, communications and view screens along a thirty-degree arc of wall, remote arming and firing banks adjoining, and the desk formed as a wall projection part of the remaining curve. I am Staben Tuick, son of Esmar Tuick, the smuggler said. Then you're the one I owe thanks for the help we've received, Halleck said. Ah, gratitude, the smuggler said. Sit down. A ship-type bucket seat emerged from the wall beside the screens and Halleck sank onto it with a sigh, feeling his weariness. He could see his own reflection now in the dark surface beside the smuggler and scowled at the lines of fatigue in his lumpy face. The ink-vine scar along his jaw writhed with the scowl. Halleck turned from his reflection, stared at Tuick. He saw the family resemblance in the smuggler now, the father's heavy, overhanging eyebrows and rock planes of cheeks and nose. "'Your men tell me your father is dead, killed by the Harkonnens,' Halleck said. "'By the Harkonnens, or by a traitor among your people?' Tuick said. Anger overcame part of Halleck's fatigue. He straightened, said, "'Can you name the traitor?' "'We are not sure.' Thufir Howat suspected the Lady Jessica. Ah, the Bene Gesserit witch, perhaps. But Howat is now a Harkonnen captive. I heard. Halleck took a deep breath. It appears we've a deal more killing ahead of us. We will do nothing to attract attention to us, Tuick said. Halleck stiffened. But you and those of your men we've saved are welcome to sanctuary among us, Tuick said. You speak of gratitude. Very well. Work off your debt to us. We can always use good men. We'll destroy you out of hand, though, if you make the slightest open move against the Harkonnens. But they killed your father, men. Perhaps. And if so, I'll give you my father's answer to those who act without thinking. A stone is heavy, and the sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. You mean to do nothing about it, then? Halleck sneered. You did not hear me say that. I merely say I will protect our contract with the Guild. The Guild requires that we play a circumspect game. There are other ways of destroying a foe. Ah. Ah, indeed. If you've a mind to seek out the witch, have at it. But I warn you that you are probably too late, and we doubt she's the one you want anyway. Howart made few mistakes. He allowed himself to fall into Harkonnen hands. You think he's the traitor? Tuick shrugged. This is academic. We think the witch is dead. At least the Harkonnens believe it. You seem to know a great deal about the Harkonnens. Hints and suggestions, rumours and hunches. We are seventy-four men, Halleck said. If you seriously wish us to enlist with you, you must believe our duke is dead. His body has been seen. And the boy too? Young Master Paul? Halleck tried to swallow, found a lump in his throat. According to the last word we had, he was lost with his mother in the desert storm. Likely not even their bones will ever be found. So the witch is dead then. All dead. Twick nodded. And Beast Raban, so they say, will sit once more in the seat of power here on Dune. The Count Raban of Lancavale? Yes. 
It took Halleck a moment to put down the upsurge of rage that threatened to overcome him. He spoke with panting breath. I've a score of my own against Raban. I owe him for the lives of my family. He rubbed at the scar along his jaw. And for this. One does not risk everything to settle a score prematurely, Tuick said. He frowned watching the play of muscles along Halleck's jaw, the sudden withdrawal in the man's shed-lidded eyes. I know. I know. Halleck took a deep breath. You and your men can work out your passage off Arrakis by serving with us. There are many places to— I release my men from any bond to me. They can choose for themselves. With Raban here, I stay. In your mood, I'm not sure we want you to stay. Halleck stared at the smuggler. You doubt my word? No! You've saved me from the Harkonnens. I gave loyalty to the Duke later for no greater reason. I'll stay on Arrakis, with you, or with the Fremen. Whether a thought is spoken or not, it is a real thing, and it has power, Tuick said. You might find the line between life and death among the Fremen to be too sharp and quick. Halleck closed his eyes briefly, feeling the weariness surge up in him. "'Where is the Lord who led us through the land of deserts and of pits?' he murmured. "'Move slowly and the day of your revenge will come,' Tuick said. "'Speed is a device of Shaitan. "'Cool your sorrow. Weave the diversions for it. Three things there are that ease the heart. "'Water, green grass, and the beauty of woman.' Halleck opened his eyes. I would prefer the blood of Raban Harkonnen flowing about my feet. He stared at Tuek. You think that day will come? I have little to do with how you'll meet tomorrow, Gurney Halleck. I can only help you meet today. Then I'll accept that help and stay until the day you tell me to revenge your father and all the others who... Listen to me, fighting man, Tuek said. He leaned forward over his desk, his shoulders level with his ears, eyes intent. The smuggler's face was suddenly like weathered stone. My father's water, I'll buy that back myself, with my own blade.